0: I had to think about how can I show up and find my voice in corporate spaces and places if I wanted to lead teams. I had to practice hearing the sound of my own voice. Even when I started my own podcast, I didn't want to listen to them, and I had to force myself. But then you get used to it. If you can't practice hearing the sound of your own voice, how are you going to use it?
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Trailblazing in Color podcast where we explore the journeys, experiences, and insights of leaders making waves in their respective fields toward building more equitable and just cultures. I'm your host, Sarah Chapman Becerra. In today's episode, I have the privilege of speaking with Meena Malik, inclusion champion and top LinkedIn voice committed to helping companies craft brands with purpose. She is the author of the new book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace a book that delves deep into the myths surrounding diversity, equity, and inclusion and provides practical guidance on how to create more inclusive cultures. I've been inspired by Mita's work and podcast, The Brown Table Talk, co-hosted by Dee Marshall, for several years now. As a woman of color and fellow introvert, Mita's work has had a profound impact on what I've been able to see as possible for myself and has helped me be a better self-advocate. So if I sound a little nervous, you know why. Listen in as Mita and I discuss the importance of self-awareness in challenging bias, the role of individuals in promoting inclusivity, and how organizations can scale and integrate DEI efforts across their ecosystem. Whether you're a seasoned advocate or just starting your journey, stay tuned for a conversation that promises to reshape your perspective and equip you with the tools you need to reimagine inclusion. Let's dive right in with Mita Malik on Trailblazing in Color. Welcome to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, where we talk to changemakers and innovators focused on upending systems not designed by or for them to create a more inclusive and equitable world. I'm your host, Sarah Chapman Becerra. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Trailblazing in Color podcast. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about today's trailblazing guest. Mina Malik is a corporate change maker with a track record of transforming businesses. She gives innovative ideas a voice and serves customers and communities. She has had an extensive career as a marketer in the beauty and consumer product goods space, being a fierce advocate of including and representing black and brown communities. Her passion for inclusive storytelling led her to become a chief diversity officer to build end-to-end inclusion ecosystems through big and small organizations. Mita has brought her talent and expertise to companies like Carta, Unilever, Pfizer, Avon, Johnson & Johnson, and more. She's a sought-after speaker and coach to startup founders, executives, and public CEOs. She is also the co-host of the popular podcast, The Brown Table Talk, part of the LinkedIn podcast network. On the Brown Table Talk, Mita and Dee Marshall share stories and tips on how to help women of color win at work and advice for allies on how they can show up. Mita is a LinkedIn top voice, contributor for Harvard Business Review, Adweek, Entrepreneur, and Fast Company. Mita has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, Forbes, Axios, Essence, Cosmopolitan Magazine, and Business Insider. She was featured in a documentary created by Soledad O'Brien, Productions, for CBS News, entitled Women in the Workplace and the Unfinished Fight for Equality. Ida is the author of the forthcoming book, Reimagine Inclusion, debunking 13 myths to transform your workplace. In it, she delivers powerful storytelling combined with practical and hands-on ways for us to be more inclusive leaders. Mita holds a B.A. from Barnard College, Columbia University, and an M.B.A. from Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. She lives in New Jersey with her husband and two children. Mita, I am so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. How are Sarah, you today?
0: thank you so much. I've been looking forward to our conversation. I'm doing really great, and I'm just excited to
1: talk to you about so many things. So many things. Me too. I mean, listen to that bio. We are, oh, we can go so many directions <laughs> and we will. And I really, really, really want to talk about this book. But first, let's start by talking a little bit about your trailblazing leadership because you truly are a pioneer in so many ways. Your journey is marked by numerous achievements, as we heard in the bio, but successful podcast hosts of Brown Table Talk, highly accomplished leader and change catalyst for so many organizations. and a sought after speaker and now a published yes. author. I know just reflected back. And that's not even all no, of it. That's just you. a tiny slice of it. said <laughs> that But I want to hear and I want our listeners to hear a little bit more about the story behind the story. What are some of the experiences that have shaped you and led you to this place where you are today?
0: Well, I start with Someone had once asked what my origin story was. I love that. I'm not a Marvel fan, but now I understand the origin story. I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents, Sarah. I was born and raised in the U.S. with my younger brother, and I always talk about how I grew up in a place and a time where it was not cool to be Indian. I was the funny-looking, dark-skinned girl with a long, funny-looking braid whose parents spoke funny English until it wasn't funny anymore, and I was bullied a lot, both verbally and physically growing up. And there are many different moments of things that happened to me, but the one that I've spoken more publicly about that was, was a pivotal moment in high school. I, it was my freshman year. I was taking a class called Intro to Physical Science. I was really excited about it. And I had two uh, white boys in the class who had decided to target me for whatever reason. And they would find me in the hallway and pull my long braid and say, "'Nay, horsey, go faster.'" One of the white boys sat behind me and when I didn't pass the papers back fast enough in class, he would hold my head back against the desk. And one day, Sarah, they decided to set my hair on fire during the lab portion of that class. And so my lab partner, who had not spoken to me the entire time in those eight weeks, said to me, I think your hair is on fire. And they had been lighting matches behind me and throwing them into my long braid. And so the damage to my hair outgrew right hair grows back but the damage to my psyche was deep and one of the things that was really interesting that happened Sarah that day was the principal called us all into the office and made me feel like I had done something wrong they actually never told my parents the boys were suspended for two days and came back to that class to terrorize me that was one of the first moments I actually had my mother stop doing my hair because the hair had burned but enough that I could hide it And it was interesting. It was the first time in my life, other than my parents and brother, someone showed up for me as an ally. And that was the guidance counselor who was also a cross-country and track coach. And he, for some reason, had a sense that I could run fast because I am not coordinated at all, as my husband will attest to, but I can run fast. And I joined cross-country and track that year. And it was an amazing equalizer to be on the field with girls who respected me for my skill. But it was the first time that someone in school had shown up for me like that. And I share that story because I never thought the bullies that were in the classrooms and schoolyards would follow me into corporate America. So my hair being set on fire was really an analogy for what I would actually experience throughout the rest of my career.
1: Hmm. And tell us a little bit about that transition. I mean, yeah, you thought it would ceased when you entered corporate America and you know you're in a professional setting what were some of the first times when you realized oh I'm right back here mm. in yes. in in school and right back with those bullies these workplace bullies are are now have replaced those white boys in mm. in science class
0: one of the first memories I have is being at Barnard College Columbia University and having an internship and I was the only that summer, woman of color, I believe only person of color in the internship program, and I was mistaken for the receptionist at the front desk by someone very senior, and they said to me, well, my guests are here, you haven't printed out their badges, and I was like, I'm an intern, I don't work at reception, and he was very sort of embarrassed and ran off and, or being asked to constantly make copies and get coffee, which let me, let me say, yes, many interns do. But if you're the only intern that's being asked to do that, you start to wonder, well, why do people keep mistaking me for the receptionist or secretary and executive assistant, but none of the other interns in the same class? And then when I left business school, I was so excited. I was on cloud nine I was really excited to start my career in marketing. And in one of my first assignments, I had reclaimed my name. So my full name is Madhumita Malik. And there's a whole story around my name. But for all the reasons you might suspect, I shortened it to Meeta Malik. And then when I left graduate school, I thought I'm going to reclaim my full name. So I go into this job with my full name reclaimed. I'm very excited about it. And I had a boss at the time, Sarah, who could not pronounce Madhimita, which is fine, did not want to learn how to pronounce it. I had offered the option of Mita, and he decided he would rename me Muhammad and thought that was really funny. And I've written about this publicly in Fast Company and would, would be like, Muhammad, the sales samples are here. Muhammad, go to front desk and get the agency. Muhammad, are you joining us for lunch? And I can now say, and I cringe thinking, I responded to a name that was not my own for so long until I finally resigned? And the question I ask Sarah now is like as much anger as I had towards him and I've forgiven and moved forward, I still wonder where his peers were. This was happening publicly. So where were all the other people who could have stood up for me? And that's what's happening in our workplaces. Too many of us are bystanders. We're just watching things happen and not intervene. And so listen, I know we have limited time. I have many more stories, but those were the... And I just thought to myself, and I even said, like, I really would prefer you don't call me Muhammad. I think somehow I was able to blurt that out. Oh, it's funny. You're being too sensitive. And so again, as we know, there's power and privilege at play in workplaces. So it's really easy for someone to listen to the story and say, well, why did you let him call you that? And the question is, why did the team and organization allow him to do that? That's the real question. Because as someone junior, I didn't have a lot of
1: power in that situation at all. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit is moving into, I mean, you are you are now really taking this power that you've worked so hard for and, and moved your way into this position, not only of respect in certain ways, but also in your own kind of ability to speak truth to power. Because I know as women of color especially, this is really, really hard. There's privilege, there's power dynamics at play. Mm-hmm. And there's also this sense of smallness that, that's been taught to yes. us for our entire existence. So what was it, what did it look like? That transition slowly but surely and starting to use your voice. And even in that example you just shared, you did, it was ignored. How did you come to this place now where you do have a platform, you do have courage to speak truth to power on very large Mm. stages and platform?
0: Well, I am not an overnight success. It did not happen overnight. And if, as you know now, my upbringing, I was painfully shy and an introvert. And corporate America does not value that. I hope things are changing. I know things are changing. And I had to think about how can I show up and find my voice in corporate spaces and places if I wanted to lead teams. Part of it was, Sarah, that I had to practice hearing the sound of my own voice, which might sound strange, but hearing the sound of your own voice. Even when I started my own podcast, I didn't want to listen to them, and I had to force myself. But then you get used to it. If you can't practice hearing the sound of your own voice, how are you going to use it? So my husband will attest to over the many years, in the shower, in an empty room, late at night, practicing a presentation practicing answering questions, pretending people were in the room because I was so nervous to present. So there's like, just like an athlete practices skill. I'm not somebody who was born a natural orator. I've had to work really hard at the skill of speaking and using my voice. My my big tip for people that I started to do is, and I still do it now, is that whenever you are entering a meeting and someone's presenting something There's always a lull after it's been presented. Any questions, comments, I always raise my hand first. I always talk on Zoom first. I always raise my hand first because that builds courage to do that. I also always sit in the front. I grab the first seat. If it's Zoom, I come in early to do small talk and get acquainted. It gets me more comfortable with the meeting. And I always read materials ahead of time that someone sends because as an introvert, then you have the time to process it. And then you have the time to then comfortably jump in with a point of view rather than having to respond to something on the spot, which I know can be really difficult. But you have to practice using your voice. And that's how you you feel more comfortable with it over time.
1: I appreciate how you named the building of the courage over time too. It's like I'm pushing myself into this very uncomfortable position of raising my hand, of being in the front, of being the first to speak because it is so outside of my comfort zone, but you recognize that each time it's a little, little easier. Yeah. And it's still, I'm sure, not easy to this day, but it feels different every time. I think that's a good challenge to raise, especially for introverts. I also identify as an introvert and and I, I hear you on so many of those things. It does. It's absolutely. Not natural or comfortable. Yeah. And,
0: and as we'll talk about it, as I talk about in my book, Reimagine Inclusion, it's also up to leaders. There's the individual and how we have to show up, but leaders really thinking of diversity of leadership styles, how people like to receive information, how people like to contribute. Do we have different standards for different people? All of those things is also up to the individual who's managing, coaching a team to really think about, Mita was so passionate. Why has she suddenly gone quiet? Or to recognize I actually appreciate when things are sent to me ahead of time. I appreciate also using my voice in writing because I love writing, right? So there are many different ways to show that you're making an impact at work without always constantly being the, I always say, I'm not Sarah gonna be the loudest voice in the room, but I'll sure, be sure to make impact. And so why do we always as a corporate culture value the loudest voice? Like, do we overvalue
1: the loudest voice is the question we have to ask ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that nuance of paying attention to each individual yes. that you have in the room and their style and their patterns of behavior mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. And so where is that changing and where can I be more intentional with how yes. I show up for each unique style in on our team, in our organization? I think that's a great transition for us to start to talk about this intentionality be- behind becoming an inclusive leader mm-hmm. and creating inclusive organizations and ecosystems. I love that word ecosystem so much. I use it a lot, too, yes. because it's just about... One aspect; mm-hmm. it's about the the entirety, how everything connects, and how inclusion underlies all of that, underpins all of that. So, I want to talk about your book. Yes. I was so lucky to receive, uh, to be able to read this this exclusive sneak peek oh, copy of you. Reimagine Inclusion: Debunking Thirteen Myths to Transform Your Workplace. And I have to say, Mita, this is this truly is one of the most catalyzing transformative books on inclusion that I've read to date. Oh, Sarah, that means so much. Thank you. I think it's incredibly timely. I think it's inviting and accessible in so many ways. And it's also really intentional, which is exactly what we need for this work, Mm. because it does take so much and it requires so much of our mindsets to shift. So can you start by sharing a little bit of insight behind the scenes around what it took to bring forth this book into the world. Now that it's about to come out, what are some of the emotions you're feeling too? Well, I wrote it four years ago.
0: And a tip for our listeners is that I have written and kept many career journals, which is very different than journaling. I write down a lot of my career experiences, the highs and the lows, and I like to process through writing. And so I went back through all those journals to put together 13 myths. Now, why 13? Let's not overcomplicate it. It's my lucky number. That's why I picked 13. But to your point, there's a lot of great books on DEI and leadership right now. And so, if I was going to add my voice to the marketplace, I wanted it to be differentiated. I wanted people to take notice, like my content and social media. They are clickbait titles, they are to get you interested in thinking about the topic. And I wanted to say the quiet parts out loud. I wanted to approach it from these myths that hold us back. It's like the stories I tell my kids at that time, right? And it's like the stories we tell ourselves at work that actually could do more damage and it could good, but it took me a really long time to publish it. And I, I got a lot of rejections along the way, but here I am and just really excited and not many people have read it. So it's really exciting to hear your feedback. My husband still has to read it. He He's lived it all, but he still actually has to read the whole book.
1: He's heard the stories yes. when you come from home from <laughs> Absolutely, I mean, there's a lot more, he's experienced a lot yes. more emotion with it, right. I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> well, sharing a little bit more about why you chose to, to focus on myths. What I like is is how this framing is so connected to the idea of unlearning, an untrue story. How do you think that that ties to this work of inclusion, this idea of unlearning? There's a lot we have to unlearn.
0: And I talk about it in Reimagine Inclusion, even this idea of colorblind. There are a lot of things that we were raised with, depending on where we were raised, where we consider home, our communities. That we have to be brave enough to say, actually, I need to unlearn that. And that's the hardest part. And being an inclusive leader, there's no A plus, there's no extra credit. There's no endpoint. It's just a journey. There's no destination. And so there's just constant work to do better and be better. Language is changing, the environment is changing. My book is coming out in the middle of what I would say a really strong DENI backlash, which is here to stay, given everything that's happening from a US and global perspective. And so there's just constant change and things that we thought were true when we grew up are just no longer true or were never true to begin with.
1: Never true to begin with this is often, yeah, what we hear and see. And especially when it comes to this work and diversity, equity and inclusion, belonging work, all of the pieces of this that take us from from one story to a new more inclusive mm-hmm. story. It really does require stepping back and slowing down. And that's what I liked about how you framed each myth. Not only that it talks about that unlearning, but it also came from a lot of these career journals I can now see. Um, So in each chapter, you cover a myth about what being an inclusive organization looks Mm -hmm. like. And a lot of these come from direct quotes that you've heard from leaders you've worked for or with, such as, Myth one, of course, I support Black Lives Matter. Why are you asking if I have any black friends? Or myth four, I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good, which is such an underpinning of yes. this myth of the lack of diverse mm-hmm. pipelines. And I want to spend some time throughout our conversation today just unpacking a few of these of myths and wetting people's palettes for how much, how robust this truly is the work that you've put into helping to, to learn a different way or to just see things in a different way, a different perspective. So maybe we could start talking about myth three. Mm. It's time to have some courageous conversations on race. Let's ask our employees of color to lead them is the title mm-hmm. of that myth. And in this chapter, you recount a disturbing story that was set in 2016 after the murders of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and your experience about what went on in your workplace as a response to that. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what happened
0: there? Absolutely. And each of these stories just didn't happen in whatever organization I was working with or helping at the time. It's happened everywhere. That's what I think is really interesting about the stories. I'm sure you'll agree. They're evergreen. And that's, that's why they're myths and that's why I have to impact them. I was put in a position, which many individuals are who are leading diversity, equity, inclusion work. I was put in a position to ask, to invite, to gather Black employees for what I would say is to put pain on display. And your employee resource groups are not your diversity, equity, inclusion strategy. Now, don't get me wrong, ERGs are really important for community and conversation, but how often do we continue to put the burden on individuals from historically marginalized communities to do the work of education? And so when you think about these courageous conversations on race, an example, let's say that's happening today, anti-Asian hate crimes, xenophobia continued in this country. I ask the Asian ERG to gather to talk to our mostly white leadership team, about how they feel about individuals in their community being hurt, harmed, and killed and loss of life. And what we don't realize, as I talk about in this myth, is the intergenerational trauma and how people are giving away pieces of themselves every time they have to recount how they feel about their community being harmed. And it's really connected to, I think, This human need and connection for storytelling. Storytelling is one of the oldest forms of communication in human civilization. So we are driven to go to a primary source. Sarah, what did you think about X, Y, and Z? Tell me the story. Tell me how you feel. Without actually realizing that's actually causing you more trauma to have to recount how you feel about how your community has been harmed. And I'll pause there and interested to hear your thoughts. You know, when we talk about this term courageous conversations, I always say, who is being courageous in that conversation? Who is bearing the burden of being courageous? Because oftentimes it is the individual from the historically marginalized community who is expected to drive that conversation while everyone else is uncomfortable and silent. And so who is actually being courageous? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that idea of Reliving the trauma connected to generations of trauma and also having to see reactions to that trauma in particular in this in this example and in this myth, particularly white colleagues Mm -hmm. who are responding sympathetically not necessarily empathetically because they've never been there. And so you're you're also having to comfort and console. But and are
0: streaming down put- their face and you're like, wow. Mm-hmm. And One of the other ways in which I've been raised in corporate America is I put my comfort of others before mine. And mm-hmm. so while I might be, let's just say, asked to share some trauma and the white leadership team is crying, to your point, now I'm in a position where I have to console them when I'm the one... <laughs> Who's been hurt and harmed in my community? And I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable, but it's just I'm I'm also just in disbelief that this still happens. Like you're like, wow, it's just because I'm gonna laugh or I'm gonna cry. Because it's happening in organizations across the country.
1: It is. And that's what I've always appreciated so much about you and D Marshall creating this safe space in Brown Table Talk to raise raise these conversations, to raise this, that it's not just that workplace with that ERG who was asked to put their paint on display. It's it's not a unique experience to you, to D. It's giving a voice to all of these challenges to validate so many of us and to also inform allies, educate allies that this is happening Mm -hmm. on a systemic level. Yes. Not just in your organization. So, and, but it is happening in your organization. So what can you do about it? Yeah. Like talking about racial gaslighting and, and tokenism mm-hmm. and all of the ways in which we we make it much more difficult systemically for just the recognition of that pain. Mm-hmm. And so giving it a, a safe space to talk Absolutely. about that. What have some of the positive outcomes of that, of raising these, these issues and conversations on the podcast. What have you seen positively come out of these what are, six seasons now? Yeah, we're entering seven. We're into seven now. Seven, it's pretty incredible. Almost seven. Yes. I and you
0: know, the whew, hard work as a fellow podcaster. It is hard work. But it's amazing, Sarah, when women reach out to us and say, it's like you're reading my personal journal. Or diary. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not alone. I always say this podcast was a love letter to my younger self because I experienced all these things and I didn't know that other people were experiencing it. I didn't have a place to talk about it. And so it was really D and I talking about each other until we started this podcast. I've had women reach out and say, I have finally moved on from my job and found another great opportunity because I know I was being undervalued. I have asked for more and gotten more. I will no longer be doing free labor, right? I'm no longer doing free consulting. You know, as my friend Lisa Hurley says, exposure doesn't pay the bills, my friend. Exposure doesn't pay the bills. And also allies. I have white men who've reached out to me who have said these are conversations I would never be privy to or be part of. So it's such a great educational tool for me because I got access to some of these stories. And then I think, wow, are these happening in my workplace? And how could I be showing up differently? And so I believe that stories have the power to heal and inspire change. And so that's what we're going to
1: continue doing for as long as LinkedIn will have us. It's so so beautiful because you both, you and Dee, have such such a plethora of stories, unfortunately, but also you bring in what what you've heard from others. So it's also so expansive in in the experience that you share because you're having these conversations all of the time, and it's letting others, like the white men that are reaching out to you, be privy to those conversations rather than keeping them behind closed doors. We're opening these doors up. Come in and see what's really happening here. Absolutely. You know, I had someone say to me not too
0: long ago, "Wow, you've had a really colorful career." Are all these stories true? And you're sort of like, huh, a little bit of dismissing, minimizing, or gaslighting, like trying to get me to doubt. No, unfortunately, these things have all happened to me and I'm not making any of them up. But that just goes to show you we just haven't talked about these things in so long because there's no woman of color who I speak to who's in doubt. If you have, experience what I've experienced. It's mostly head nodding. Yep, I've been there. Oh my God, that happened to me. Oh my God, I can't believe you said that out loud. And so that just goes to show you how much work we have to do on our journey to be more inclusive leaders on really trying to learn about lived experiences that aren't our own.
1: And to that end, yeah, not being shocked at hearing your stories because similar experiences, but also sometimes this this taking of a step back, like, that was wrong, wasn't yes. it? I, yes. Back to gaslighting. I I was, I was, had so convinced myself that that was okay, and now here you are telling me out loud that that wasn't, yes. and now my whole story is rewritten about that experience, about that leader, about that workplace, because I rationalized it and justified it, sometimes for the sole purpose of surviving it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Well, since you brought it up that about, you know... Pay equity, worthiness, value. I want to talk a little bit about myth number six. Why are you asking for a raise? Your husband makes more than enough money. Oh, this quote. And yes, another direct quote. But in Mm. this, let's talk about gender pay parity for a little bit. Um, because it is we are not where we need to be. We are still hearing these crazy rationalizations Mm -hmm. for why women don't deserve to earn what they're worth. You share so many examples in the book. I'll share a couple sure. here. It's like, she's the primary earner in her family and won't ever leave. I wouldn't put her on a, on the merit increase list or she's going on a maternity leave and who knows if she'll come back. No need to give her a gen- generous bonus this round. She's single. She doesn't have a family. We should make it a priority to review the other team members' compensation first. These are just a few of the many, many examples that you've heard Throughout your career, what makes all of these quote-unquote justifications so problematic? Most companies are doing the right
0: thing when it comes to pay equity. So what do I mean by that? In the U.S., pay transparency laws are changing. Companies are doing quietly behind the scenes pay equity reviews by level, by function. But here's the thing. It comes down to me, Mita, as the individual leader who wreaks havoc on the system. Because Sarah Mm -hmm. comes to me. And asks for a raise. And I say, well, your husband makes more than enough money, which is the story that happened to me. Why are you asking for a raise? Or I, I see Sarah carrying that Birkin to work. I don't need to be paying. She doesn't need this job, right? Or another example I share is, why is Sarah getting the 5% merit increase? Her husband Jim is in sales. He's killing it. Move that down to a 3%. And where does this all start? It all starts with the gender stereotypes, the cultural stereotypes we have on the role we believe women should play versus men in our society, And however we've been raised, those are in the back of our head and they come back into the forefront in our workplaces. And I also talk about in this myth, it's really tied to our cultural relationship with money as well. I was raised not to talk about money, If you're raised not to talk about money, how can you negotiate for yourself? And then guess what? I do all the things that my friend Alexander Carter talks about and ask for more. I've actually upskilled myself on how to negotiate. And then I try to go negotiate and I'm gaslit, dismissed, and minimized, right? So then the myth that white women and women of color don't negotiate, actually we do often. And it's the way in which it's received is problematic. Mm
1: -hmm. So what can individual inclusive leaders do to change this, to to advocate for their own team members and their own uh, equitable pay for all the women on their team? The first thing you can do is do
0: not wait for HR. It's not HR's job. If you run a team, go and do a pay equity review on your own. Now, what do I mean by that? Don't do it on your own. Go and check what team members are being paid and then go ask HR for help. But it shouldn't be HR coming to you. This is your team. And particularly in a market where it's flux, where it's we're in flux, right? People are leaving, people are joining. And we know this. Whenever you move jobs, you just get paid more. And so the question is: if you just hired Mita and she's making a lot more and Sarah's been here for a while, are you punishing the loyalty that Sarah has showed? And we're actually doing the same job. We have the same years of experience. And and Mita came in with a really big pay increase. These are things you can do on your own with HR's help. You can initiate, right? You can initiate. The second thing I would say is interrupt bias in the moment. Now, this is hard because we're scared we're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. But as I talk about reimagine inclusion, ask open-ended questions. Sarah, why does what Mita's husband do for a living relevant to her compensation discussion? Can we discuss why it's relevant that we know that she's a primary breadwinner? Can we go back to focusing on the metrics, what she's achieved this year, and go back to the metrics and then go back to discussing what her bonus should be? So again, as we talk about on the Brown Table Talk podcast, facts versus feelings. We all have feelings about things. Get people to work through their feelings and get back to the facts, the facts of why Mita should be compensated what she's worth and what she's delivered for the company. And so if you do it in that way, people maybe become defensive, but I think oftentimes will start to be like, okay, you sort of caught me, (laughs) work through the feelings, let me go through the facts. The other thing, the last thing I would talk, I talk about as well, which I know you're familiar with is the motherhood penalty and the fatherhood premium. So for every child I've had with my husband, which is two, he is more committed, more ambitious, and attracts more money. It's the fatherhood premium. For every child I have had, I'm a disheveled mess, and I get paid less. And this is statistically true. And much research has been done about it. So also, when you're thinking about pay equity, think about looking at longer-term pay impact for women in your organization who have become mothers. Interesting to think about, right? Has there... Pay gone down over time. Has it plateaued? Why? And it could be, especially if you're in a large organization, you have many bosses going from team to team. But wouldn't it be interesting if someone? Okay, Mita's been here for ten years, and Jim has as well. Poor Jim. I just making up the name Jim. I don't know Jim. And we both have had the same career, and we both have expanded our families, and we're at the same level. And like, if all things were equal, equal. Has our pay been impacted by the fact that I've become a mother and he's become a father, and
1: how has our pay been impacted? There's so much nuance there. I think I mean we're starting to get into this process process of on the HR side, mm-hmm. the pay equity analysis. And there's so many more, like you've just named, so many more segments that can really paint that full picture of, you know, where are we getting stuck? Where is this not happening i mean it may look apples to apples the same right now but you're right looking at that 10-year trajectory Absolutely. where are the changes so there's system yeah. work happening which yeah. is good and and more to be done and i also appreciate you naming that it's the systems may be in place and are right it's not always the processes and systems that fail us it's us mm-hmm. we fail us yes. because as Much as the systems may reflect what we want to be, it's people that take the action, that go into following or not following Mm -hmm. these policies and procedures. So from your own experience, how do you see at the individual level, how do we courageously hold one another to account? You mentioned identifying bias in the moment, Mm -hmm. challenging that with open-ended questions. What are some other things that we as individuals can do courageously? Uh as inclusive leaders? I think
0: the biggest thing is to recognize we all have bias. We all do. And a lot of it stems from our upbringing. And I talk about this in Reimagine Inclusion. We're doing this work almost backwards. We spend so much time at work, but we also spend a lot of time in our communities. And so inclusion doesn't start at the boardroom or the conference room table. It starts at our kitchen room table. It starts in our community. So if you aren't doing this work outside of work, how do you expect to show up differently at work? So Sarah, the question... If you're the CEO and I'm on your exec team and you actually have built or we have built together a very diverse team that I am running, the question is not about the team. It's whether I'm equipped to lead it. Am I equipped to lead that team? And that's the question we should be asking. So think about how you can really be doing this work outside of work, which I talk about in Reimagine Inclusion, but also think about the bias is always running through our head. And generally... We will pull on bias when we are on autopilot or making short, quick decisions or trying to do shortcuts. And so, really think about interrupting your bias in your head. And that's okay. You know, I can have a thought about Mita. Okay, hold that thought, process it, digest it. And then, because you've recognized it in your head, you will then take a different action as a result because you're holding it in your head and you're thinking about it. And that's what I hope more of us do.
1: Mm-hmm. That, that idea that the work starts at home, the work starts within, with mm-hmm. that self-awareness, with that self-connection of, of starting to just slow down, yes. slow down our thoughts, pause our thinking or just pause as a reaction to our thinking before we make decisions, before absolutely. we make really life-altering decisions, yeah, especially for our team members and for the people that we're here to serve, which brings me to this idea that, you know, often when organizations start to move into their DEI journeys or want to start focusing on this work, which we're in a a challenging time, definitely. I like to think about at scale. So we've been talking about individual leaders organizationally. What do you see organizations doing well in terms of scaling the systems that activate inclusive organizations?
0: The organizations that understand that inclusion is a driver of the business will have a competitive advantage and they weave it into everything they do. And so I know we both love the word ecosystem. You're thinking about how you build this through the org. So it starts with workforce, the first pillar. Are you reflecting the communities in which you operate in throughout all levels? And what are you doing about it? The second is products and services, which is really overlooked, but it's coming to a head right now is who are you overlooking and why? Who are you speaking to and why? And if you tell me there's no growth to be had, I'll tell you you're not looking hard enough. There are communities you're not considering. The third is supplier diversity. Sarah, I can't tell you how many Fortune 100 companies I've worked for we write the same $10 million check to the same supplier. And you ask yourselves, what's our role? Why couldn't we be I say at Carta, I'd love to be someone's first customer. How amazing it is if you can be someone's first customer and change the trajectory of their business. So think about that, the power of the check. And the fourth, gosh, we're living in it right now. You can say you stand for values, but when are you ready to stand up for them? Are you ready to actually put your employees' care at the center? Are you ready to do more than an Instagram post? And you'll see more and more the marketplace is bifurcating, right? You have Coinbase and Basecamp who... In the middle of the pandemic recently, not too long ago, said, we're not talking about social justice. We're not talking about de We're just, no. And then you have Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's. You have other companies who it's a part of their DNA and core. And guess what? As soon as the market is in a place where the power is back in the hand of the employee, and it always swings back and forth, people will make a choice. They will choose more and more, particularly with Gen Z entering the marketplace they want to work for a company that matches their values. The question is, are you going to be that company? Or are you going to let that talent go somewhere else, which is your
1: choice? And that idea of keeping talent, keeping and really keeping this this full picture in mind, mm. the ecosystem idea of it's not just one thing, it's everything. It's not just how diverse our workforce is. It's it's all of the pieces. It's supplier diversity. It's so much more. It's the programs and the professional de- development that we offer. And and so I just want to start to kind of go into our quick takes and advice. But I I really want to emphasize what an incredible manual and guide you've created. Mm-hmm. Thank you to really reframe the ways that we've traditionally maybe seen DEI activated. To look underneath, to look deeper, to look at how do we make this sustainable and how do we make it pervasive throughout the organization? And why is it so important? You've just articulated why this isn't going away. Mm -hmm. And it's really something that organizations that want to sustain this next generation of talent have to really look at. It's not just about having values. It's about how do we operationalize them? How do we hold one another accountable along the way? So I have a few more quick take questions wherein woo, I, w- I want to ask the question we always ask, which is who trailblazed the path for you? Who has laid this this path that has led you to where you are today?
0: We stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. My grandmothers, they were both child brides. Dad's mother was married when she was 12. My mother's mother was married when she was 10. was not lo- that long ago, and child marriage is still happening around the world and needs to stop, but they were... Remarkable women.
1: What do you have for advice? And I know you've given some earlier. Just those that are from historically marginalized communities looking to find their voice, what might you tell them? Or even, like you said, a love letter to your younger self. What would you tell your younger self? Practice
0: using your voice every day in small ways. It doesn't have to be something big, you're, you know, practicing your voice, it's a TED talk. No, it's not a TED talk. It could be a post on LinkedIn. It could be an email you send someone. It could be something you write. So those small things will eventually lead to whatever big win is that you're seeking, but just start small with practicing using your voice.
1: And finally, how can people follow you, your work, and where can they get this book? Yes, follow me on
0: Instagram and LinkedIn. I also am on Threads now, which is exciting. And you can pre-order the book on Amazon or find it at your local bookstore. It's Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. Sarah, thank you so much for having me. This was an amazing
1: conversation. I'm so glad that you said yes. Thank you for being here. October 3rd is when the book comes out. We're so excited. So pre-order, follow. Mida, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited about this book, your work, continuously. And I'm so grateful for all that you bring to this world. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Trailblazing in Color podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to hit subscribe for future episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at at trailblazingincolor and at trailblazingincolor.com slash podcast. The Trailblazing in Color podcast is created and executive produced by me, Sarah Chapman Becerra. The Trailblazing in Color podcast season one production team includes Alicia Archer and the podcast Bestie team, led by Angie M. Jordan and supported by Gene Credit and Sarah Decker. Our theme song was composed by Troy Chapman. Thanks, Dad.